I've never seen this film in its entirety, but it came out in 1956. It has cowboy Gary Cooper and psycho Anthony Perkins playing members of a Quaker community in the Midwest, right as the rumors and the rumblings of the Civil War are about to bear down upon this region. And the movie, if I, if I understand the plot correctly, is about how does a Quaker community, which if you know anything about Quakers, are pacifists, they do not believe at any time that war is ever justifiable, how do you be a Quaker and yet come to grapple with the idea of civil war over really foundational questions about dignity and humanity and love and all those things? That's what the movie is about. Here in this early scene from the film, you're going to see a few moments of a Quaker service, but you're also going to catch a hint of the church next door, which happens to be a bunch of Methodists. <laughs> I grew up as a Methodist, so anyway, I, I, my, the point of this moment is to kind of show you a distinction between two Christian communities who appeal to Jesus, uh, how they think about worship. So uh, here we go. I had my 80th birthday, and I'd like to bear witness to Proverbs, first chapter, 33rd verse. Whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Amen, Emma. Amen. I want to ask the prayers of everyone here to help me to be less worldly, less concerned about my appearance, to mind my tongue, and especially have the strength not to wear earrings. I've never spoken in meeting before, but I feel so happy this morning. I'd like to share my happiness with everyone in the whole world. And to thank our Heavenly Father. There's actually a matter of controversy about whether that man was actually staring at him, leering at him, or just was catatonic. I'm not sure. You only see the Methodists for just a minute, and you see the Quakers for a long while. They're both gathering. They've both gathered in Jesus' name. They're both worshiping, but they're obviously taking very different approaches to what does it mean to seek the Lord and to hear from him. They've both responded. They're both being prompted to worship. But the Quakers, in that moment, there's no sermon. Some of you going, I'm converting tomorrow. <laughs> they are waiting upon the Spirit of God to speak to their condition and to bear witness to what they feel as if the Spirit is prompting in them. You know I am drawn to that, right? Do we believe in the Holy Spirit, or do we, with all due respect to our Methodist friends in that moment, do we feel as if we need to fill the space and everything with um, information and, and, and music and melody, notwithstanding its value or its worth or its truth? What does it mean to hear from God? 
What does it mean to be awakened to his wisdom that it might prompt us to speak, to share, to rejoice? And I'm checking for your earrings, ladies. We have been listening and focusing on the nature and the person of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit for many, many months. And we are approaching a point at which we're going to conclude our focus in that. We never are done with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I would hope, would inhabit everything that we do as he inhabits those who believe. But as we approach towards a, a pause on focusing on the Spirit in general, we last week, uh, Andrew led you through the Spirit and the soul's renewal. Next week, for a couple weeks, we're going to talk about the Spirit and the sacraments, about baptism and the Lord's Supper. What is the Spirit's place in that? And then we will conclude our series on the Spirit by talking about what does the Spirit have to do with our speaking, of our bearing witness to others in public, whatever it might mean. It's a nasty word we use around here, evangelism, but we don't need to think of it in that way. This week, however, with the Quakers and the Methodists leading us to a question, what does it mean to hear from the Lord what does it mean for the Spirit to speak in a sermon? What part does the Spirit play in that? We want to listen to a text from Paul speaking about preaching in general and his own. And we'll define what we mean by wisdom here in just a moment. But when it comes to the asking the question, what is the Spirit up to in preaching, what is the Spirit up to in a sermon? I think from this passage we can identify three things. That the wisdom of God is revealed by the Spirit's purpose. That the wisdom of God is spoken in the Spirit's power. And finally, that the wisdom of God is discerned through the Spirit's presence. Big words, jargon-filled words. Don't worry if you've never been here before. I promise I'll do my best to define our terms and to kind of tease it out for our reality. But this is where we're going. We're in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 2. I wonder if you might stand and prepare yourself to hear that we might know. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 1. When it came to you, brethren... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I ask, Father, that this would be a demonstration of the spirit and of power, not through plausible words of wisdom, not through lofty speech, but that it would be to your honor by what you produce in those who hear. Let it be to us as you have said in Jesus' name. Amen. So the word there you hear often is the word wisdom. Wisdom is being differentiated here in two ways. You heard it, if you read chapter 1, you hear Paul talk about how wisdom is that which Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there's a distinction. What is that distinction? Don't worry, we'll get to that in a minute. Here in our chapter, in chapter 2, you hear it put this way. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. So he's talking about wisdom in two senses, two distinct very different senses. What distinguishes the two? You've picked up a lot of wisdom in your life. Never pour hot water on a frozen windshield. Don't ever do that. Right? Uh, never fight a land war in Asia. Because that would be inconceivable. Thank you. That is wisdom that you pick up that is discovered. What you've heard through experience and that is a wisdom that I think Paul might say is a wisdom through discovery, a wisdom that is through reflection. You sit with it, you discover it, you realize it. But Paul is talking about something else. This is not a wisdom that you just sort of grapple with. Uh, I read this week, uh, Carl Jung was once in a, in a pen pal with a Roman Catholic priest, and uh, back in that day, uh, LSD was coming on the scene. Some of you are like, where am I? Um, and, and Carl Jung said to that Catholic priest, a lot of people were really, that was all the rage. He said, beware of unearned wisdom. You know, psilocybin, LSD, all those things like that, they kind of open up your senses of perception and you kind of discover things and people were like, that's the way into wisdom. And Carl Jung said, you'll be very careful. There is the wisdom through reflection. There is the wisdom that you sort of manipulate into your presence through whatever means that you might choose, that is not the wisdom that Paul is speaking of here. There is the wisdom of reflection, and there is the wisdom of revelation. Where something has been, a veil has been pulled back for you to see. The theologians will talk about two kinds of revelation as you look at the, the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There is something known as general revelation, you kind of sort of alluded to there in that opening scene from A River Runs Through It, that if you sit with created order long enough, 
you begin to discern that there is something behind this that you can't simply attribute to random forces of no interest or intent, that there is a mind behind it. Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 1. For the heavens declare the glory of God, and somehow we discern through our reflection upon that which we see that there is something greater than the sum of its parts, that there is something that might account for what we have, that there is something rather than nothing, and that is not simply attributable to a random forces of events. That's general revelation. And then there's this thing called special revelation, which is where Paul's focus is here. But God has chosen to reveal himself in particular ways, in special ways, to particular individuals at a given moment, by his own prerogative and just by his own will, but by his own power. That is the wisdom of God that we've seen manifested in Jesus. This is the distinction that is being made. What is the Spirit up to in a sermon? The Spirit is, first of all, up to revealing the wisdom of God by his own purpose. The veil is pulled back. What you heard in verse 7 describes that wisdom. It was formerly secret, it was hidden, and now has been decreed from ages before for your glory. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70. They begin to proclaim the kingdom. Stuff happens. Wild stuff happens. They come back and they are delighted about how they see God moving as people are beginning to realize and repent as they hear that Jesus has come in the flesh to remind them of the goodness of the kingdom and how the kingdom has come upon them. And Jesus says, do not rejoice that you see power. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. And then he says to them who are marveling at what is happening as they respond to him in faith, he says this, In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise, from the understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's what he means by revelation. It is, it, it, no one was just sort of sitting under their tree, stroking their beard, and Eureka, it came to me. This has something been delivered. It has been mediated through prophets, priests, kings, and now through Jesus himself. A veil has been pulled back. Paul is saying that is the nature of the revelation that is here. And it has been manifested in Jesus. And it has been revealed by God, for our good. And I've said all that, and now I have to do a pause here because I know when I speak. I know what room I'm in. I know what era you and I trade in. Paul is speaking in an era and making an argument for the idea that God reveals himself in particular ways. That's the argument he makes based upon a certain assumption that those who would hear it would at least have some category for that. We can no longer assume that in our day. The idea of revelation, that God delivers some truth, some knowledge at his prerogative that does not come simply through our reflection or through our discovery or through our experience, that idea is to some backward, if not dangerous, right? If you just go around spouting, yes, I have a revelation from the Lord, it's from him, it's unassailable, it cannot be changed, it cannot be flouted, let 
kind of puts you in a position of authority over people that like, well, so how do we test that? What is the evidence for its validity? And that, to many, sounds like, uh, I don't think I even want to accept the idea that there is a revelation. Because, you know, you get another Galileo, right? Or so the story goes. I would, I would encourage any of you to really press into the, what, what really happened during Galileo's day. If, if the Pope was really mad at Galileo, he had a funny way of showing it by letting Galileo stay in one of his personal quarters for years at a time until it blew over. So the story is not as you once have heard it. Nevertheless, the, the, the proverbial version of what happened to Galileo is, is now the way many in the scientific community say that religion is a danger because knowledge must always be able to admit further information in order to update our knowledge. That's a true fact. When it comes to knowledge, we must invite other categories. We must invite other evidence to understand that. So what do we do with Revelation? Uh, look, Paul is not here to make a case for why you should believe in Revelation. And we even tried to do a little bit of that in a sermon way back in 2023 about what Paul speaks about, the nature of the, the Spirit of God breathing into the Spirit of Scripture. I'm not here to make a case for it. I'm not here to prove it to you. I can't prove it to you. I can say a few things. For those of you who in this room say, I don't think Revelation is a good thing to believe in, and I'm saying it to everybody in this room who some days thinks, yeah, is that really Revelation, or is, that just, is this just a human artifact? Uh, tried and true, right? Proven, certainly it's got stain power, but is it of God? That's, obviously, that's the question. Let me say a few things to it. Kind of in a big way first. If you have a problem with the idea of revelation, your problem is not really with revelation. Your problem is with God. You have a God problem. You have a problem that God couldn't do that. In which case I would say, what an arrogant statement of yours. It, look, fine, that's not a proof for the Lord. But to say that God can't reveal himself in certain ways, in particular moments, by particular directives. If you say he can't do that, Hmm, your problem is not with the idea of revelation. Your problem is with God. And if I might then tease out that a little bit more, the strongest argument for the idea of revelation, of God revealing himself in special ways, would be none other than the one who spoke of it so dramatically, and that would be Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus defends himself with revelation. Jesus explains what that revelation means. Jesus clarifies what that revelation means. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. If you're wondering if that revelation has authority, you can at least point to the way in which Jesus thought of revelation to think maybe there is something to that. How then, though, do you believe in the idea of revelation in the Christian faith in a way that doesn't feel arrogant? Because you got all tons of people on your street, in your workplace, back home, in your own family, that would say, you people are arrogant for thinking that you have revelation and, nobody, and everybody else is wrong. C.S. Lewis is very helpful in this regard. In one of his chapters in Mere Christianity, he talks about the rival conceptions of God. And he says this at one point. He says, if you're a Christian, you don't have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you're a Christian, you're free to think that all those religions, even the queerest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. 
When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. He's talking about revelation. He's talking about why he believes. And to believe that revelation is a real thing that the Spirit uses in a sermon to disclose to people that will hear. More on that in a moment. It's not that you have to look down on anybody else that does not hold to your view. It just means that there is a category for this and it is trustworthy and it is plausible and you might rest in it. The Spirit works in this way. What's the, what's, let me just tease out a little implication for that. If in fact that the wisdom of God is revealed by the Spirit's purpose, then this is the implication from it, broadly speaking. If that is true, then there is a certain weight to what you hear. You must read these words like you read every other book, but you also must read these words like you read no other book. You must hear these words like you hear any other speech or talk or lecture. More on that later. But you also must hear these words in no other way, like nothing else. Because if it's revelation, then it has a certain weight. And therefore, to, a, to, to hear the words, it's not even, a, it, it, that, that almost is a, it's too pedestrian a way of thinking of it. It's not about hearing, it's about attending. It is about giving yourself a kind of focus to that. It is the difference between scrolling through this pacifier and standing out there in the gallery and staring at the work where something has been captured for your good that they thought was beautiful and worthy enough for you to see that has something for you that is not immediately ascertained by walking by. You must stand there. You must stare at it. You must submit yourself to what it is telling you. That is the nature of revelation because it has weight. Fine. It has weight. What else? Where do we go with it? If the Spirit is revealing the word of God in that way that requires an attention like no other attention, well, what else do we learn about it? Early in our passage, Paul rewinds the tape about his time among the early church at Corinthian, at Corinth, and he will remind them of what his efforts were and how they responded. And the one overarching point he makes there in the first few, cha- first few verses is this. Their response to what they heard was not simply the product of impressive language or speech that he might have given. So you hear there in verse 1 and verse 4, When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, a particular kind of high-minded, brilliantly articulate kind of language, well-argumented, well-documented, well-evidenced, no plagiarism, And then in verse 4, my speech, my message were not implausible words of wisdom. These phrases here, they are hearkening to the way in which people would give speeches in that day. Oratory, rhetoric. There were schools of rhetoric. You would learn the language, you would learn to understand the language, and then you would learn to speak the language. That was the time of rhetoric. Paul goes so far as to say, I didn't do that. In fact, the way I was with you was far from impressive. When I came to you, it was in fear, weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. In other words, those who heard him speak most likely thought, 
he's not exactly an orator, is he? Did, uh, he, he says a lot. He probably should go to rhetoric school to get a little, get a little polish. Whatever he said, and however he said it, it didn't leave them going, oh man, now there's charisma. <laughs> In his day, those who commanded the most respect was not so much what they said, but how they said it. The orators, the charismatic, the polished, the eloquent, the articulate. And if they had those qualities in what they said, people hung on every word. And you know what? You and I are familiar with it. Look, here's four faces that you know. When I, every time I hear John F. Kennedy speak there at Rice University in Houston back in 62, we choose to go to the moon, then do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Like, you, you hear that? I would, yeah, I hear that. I would, strap me to the rocket, man. Let's go. Let's go. When... When Martin Luther King says, I have a dream, you know why they screamed when he was done. When MLK is assassinated and RFK, those Kennedys, when they get up, he, RFK gets up on the back of a pickup truck and announces to the crowd that MLK is dead and he waxes into an extemporaneous speech and by the time he's done, he's quoting Aeschylus. And thank goodness somebody caught that on tape. When Ronald Reagan says to Mr. Gorbachev, please, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You remember those speeches. You remember that language. And there's nothing sinister about what they're saying. It's not like I'm suggesting to you, ah, yeah, yeah. take that with a grain of salt, friends. No. The qualities of text and timber, I mean, there's that moment in, in uh, the West Wing when Bartlett comes from church and he's sort of um, just really sad that the preacher had no sense of tone or pacing or timber. It's great. Look, those qualities of speech are good and, and are valuable, and they're not in contradistinction to what Paul is talking about here. They can be good. They're not sinister. There's not a problem. However, Paul is trying to show them. Paul is trying to impress upon them this. I don't care how moved you are by the speech. What I have come to tell you does not depend on whether you are willing to be roused to be strapped to a rocket. You people, all people in every day, myself included, we all can easily mistake style for substance. We can get caught up in the importance of the delivery and miss the significance of what's being said, and we can be contented with the way in which we hear it, not what we're hearing. And Paul is horrified by the prospect. He does not want them to fall into the error that many are in that day when they hear a brilliantly articulate argument. He's not about that. And he could deploy those qualities perhaps, but he's choosing not to. Why? Because he doesn't want them to be wrapped up in the personality of the speaker and he doesn't want them to be so impressed with the delivery that they forget about anything that the person might have said. That's to his horror. You, you know what two horrors of, of any preacher might be? One is this. People come up to them afterward and go, you have amazing delivery, and you barely look at your notes. <laughs> oh, it's a compliment, and it's received as a compliment, but holy cow. Uh, if you were here on Christmas Eve, I'm going to harken back to a moment in that sketch that Amanda and Savannah did from The Great Divorce, in which the two artists are there talking about what is true art and what is true beauty. 
and the spirit from heaven is trying to visit the, you know, the spirit from hell and trying to explain you know, what, what is beauty and what is art. And, and there's a moment there between them. I think it was Amanda's line. It, she says this, every poet and musician and artist but for grace is drawn away from the love of the thing he tells to love of the telling. Till deep down in deep hell, they cannot be interested in God at all, but only in what they say about him. They sink lower, become interested in their own personalities, and then, then in nothing but their own reputations. The horror of any preaching that I think Paul would agree is in which in the minds of those who hear that the sermon is actually more attractive than its subject. And that line haunted me when I heard it, and it haunted me when they said it, and it haunts me again today. There is a way in which the sermon can be more important than the subject. So what's the alternative? What is Paul saying? Like, not this. Okay, if not this, then what? I came to you not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What is preaching that is in demonstration of the Spirit and of power? Hard to define. Hard to give you hard and fast examples. Whatever it is, it is preaching that depends on the Holy Spirit to be at work to produce in those who hear what the Spirit intends. And it has nothing to do with the skill of the preacher. It has nothing to do with the aptitude. It has nothing to do with the vocabulary. It has everything to do with whether the Spirit is pleased to work. And if the Spirit is not, then nothing will happen. So, to borrow a line from an Alistair Begg sermon on this passage, the demonstration of the spirit and of power has nothing to do with what's happening up here. It has everything to do with what's happening in you. That's the demonstration of the spirit and of power. It's not about whether my veins pop. It is about whether or not you are gripped or whether you are illuminated or whether you are softened or whether you are convicted or whether you are comforted. That is the demonstration of the spirit and of power. So how do you know? Like, if you ever ask the question, so what is preaching that is a demonstration of the spirit of power? I'll tell you one way you know. And it has to do with what happens in the sermon at some point. So what Paul says back there in verse 3. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If that's not part of the preaching, then it will never be blessed by the Spirit. Who he is, what he did. He has the authority to be known as one who was anointed. That's what Christ means. He was anointed of God. He was sent by God. And he came to do something on our behalf. He was sent from God. He is God. He was born to die and born as a man. He was flesh. He was God. And he came to stand before us and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what we call the gospel. And if ever we grow tired of it, we should shut the place down. One way you know that it is of the spirit and of power is that that is included. Look, everything that you and I are thinking about and now talking about and now hearing about all the more for, oh my gosh, now another 11 months until this election. Immigration, race, gender, corruption, equality, education, um, public health, 
any of the number of things that are, we have reasonable things to talk about. They're important things. They're never not anything. War. Sorry, Quakers, we got to talk about the war. To believe in Jesus has implications for a discussion about all of those things. But not unless Jesus is the Christ and he was crucified. Otherwise, who cares what he said about the rest of that stuff? You debate among yourselves, fine. Come up with policy prescriptions as you will. Come up with some sort of philosophical framework to justify what you're saying. But don't confuse the implications of the gospel with the gospel itself. It does speak to those questions. It ought to frame some of our thinking about those things. But unless we speak of the foundation, the Spirit will not use it. Because the Spirit has come that the wisdom of God is spoken in that spirit. He is the one. What's the implication of that? It means that when you come for listening to preaching, you have to come with a different mindset. Um, it does have the marks of being in a lecture. You're sitting in chairs. I'm up here. I have a stand. There are lights. It's a microphone. Oh, look, it looks like PowerPoint. Sounds like a college lecture, right? And, and what do you do? You come to it, you take notes, maybe. Uh, you uh, finish, you chat, you leave, you check your phone, and then you forget. <laughs> like every college lecture you were ever part of, mostly. <laughs> right. No. In a word, no. The mindset that you have to bring to this world is that when you go to a lecture, there are, there are three things in the room you have to contend with. The, the subject the speaker and the hearer. My, my listening, uh, whoever's speaking their speech and, and whatever subject they are, that's what a college lecture is. When it comes to hearing a sermon or any preaching, um, there is a text, uh, there is a preacher, there are listeners, but also the Holy Spirit. At work. Active. Intending to. Intending not only to illuminate or to educate, but to impress. Impress upon. It's the nature of his work. It's the nature. And you have, to, uh, you have to make room for that in your own mind. Last thing I'll say here, because if the Spirit is in fact revealing to us the wisdom of God by his purpose, and he is speaking to us um, the wisdom of God uh, according to his way, then all of that depends on something else. Something without which the other two points really don't matter. And that is, what about those who hear? He reveals wisdom, he speaks wisdom, but it's no good unless we have a capacity to discern that wisdom. So verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. To those who have faith in Jesus, they have been given the spirit of God to understand the things of God. What does that mean? Your capacity to understand it depends on the Spirit acting on your behalf for your good. Not just that he reveals things by his own purpose, not just that it's spoken of in a particular power, but that you are able to discern what it's hearing, discern what is being said, and to actually believe that it might be true. So in verse 14, he makes another distinction. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The word there for natural is the word sukikos. The word there for spiritual is called pneumatikos. And it's going to speak later in 1 Corinthians 15 about what we are is we are natural. 
We are corruptible, but we will be in time made incorruptible. What is the natural person? The one who doesn't get it because they don't want to get it. And because they can't get it, they are uninfluenced. They are resistant. The one who is spiritual in this scheme is talking about one who is open and receptive. Now, even as I make that distinction, there's a possibility of it sounding rather arrogant. Like, those who are spiritual look down on you who are natural. Well, you just don't get it. You don't have the spirit. (laughs) Paul was not speaking in that way. And I am not speaking in that way. And and now I want you to kind of hear it and put in different terms that I think kind of opens up. What does it mean to say that we are awakened and understand things in ways that we did not formerly, even if we've thought about it before, until something happens? Okay. Uh, If you've been here for the last six weeks, you're about to say, dude's got a bromance with Matthew B. Crawford. And I kind of do. Never met him. He's the guy that was once, you know, PhD, political philosophy, and now he, you know, fixes motorcycles and encourages you to learn shop class and learn a trade. And you've seen his face, you've heard his words. I want you to hear his voice for a second, in which he's going to kind of speak very candidly about his own conversion in the last year. He did an interview with Andrew Sullivan a few months ago, and I encourage you to listen to all of it. Here's the, anyway, shut up, Patrick. Listen to him talk about his own sense of how things shifted for him. So I do think there's a, there's a kind of way to read the Christian story that responds directly to the kind of malaise that we're feeling and that kind of short circuits or bypass this now several centuries long kind of polemical caricature of it. What the prospects are for, you know, this kind of being revived on on any kind of mass scale, I, I don't know, but I do feel like this, there's a weird phenomenon going on with some fairly prominent thinkers kind of becoming Christians. It, it feels like a moment that's sort of fertile with an openness to something and probably, you know, fomented in part by this sense of collapse all around us, this upheaval and collapse. I think some of the think most... it, when you think of which thinkers you you're talking about who seem to be turning towards Christianity. Well, this guy Paul Kingsnorth in England, I gather Mary Harrington has become a Christian. I myself had an extraordinary experience that has made me a Christian just very recently. Can you? Will you? Are you willing to talk about that? I don't want to profane the experience by right, talking right, about it right, on a right. podcast, except right. to say that it was an experience of something other. It, this was not a hallucination or my brain. It was like this was something from outside. And it had been long prepared, I think, by you know, this sort of being rationally compelled in this direction with my reading and also certain human examples of people close to me, sort of recent recent friends, who were just overflowing with vitality. I mean, if you want a picture of Nietzsche's sort of healthy animal, these two people were that. But for them, it seemed to proceed from a love of God. free of jargon, unfiltered by the language of seminary. He's just talking about his own heart. 
and the experience that he had, and it wasn't merely a, I sat under a tree and I stroked my beard and everything became clear to me. He said, I had an experience of something, what was the word? Other. A vitality that he also saw in people, one of which, you didn't get to it, 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 he's now marrying a woman who is a Christian. And what he was persuaded of is the life they had of the love of God in them. And it wasn't simply connecting a bunch of dots rationally, even though it was wonderful to hear him say, I was prepared for this moment rationally. But that wasn't enough. There would have to be an experience of something other. Friends, I, I think that's what Paul means here when it talks about we discern the things of God by the presence of the Spirit, the activity, the working of the Spirit. So if I might say to anybody in this room to whom it applies, if you do not yet believe, I'm, I'm exhorting you to belief. For whatever reason, you have been rationally prepared to come even into this room for whatever reason that might be. I am nothing to you. My words are nothing before you. But the demonstration of the spirit and of power would be for you to say, I think maybe there is something to this Jesus and he is more than just a religious figure that he might have actually risen from the dead. I call you to faith today. But by way of conclusion, the application for all of this, if the Spirit works in the sermon in this way, I think it calls us to two priorities, and they are not complicated. One is to pray, and the other is to prepare when it ever comes to the opportunity to hear a sermon. When it comes to praying, in two directions, for whoever's preaching and for yourself. How do you pray for the one who is preaching, whoever that might be, wherever you might be? I would ask you to pray in the spirit of what I said earlier about the great divorce and in the spirit of a line of poetry I have shared with you before from a Canadian author named Robert Bringhurst. It's a poem about a woman who is unimpressed with the inauthentic advances of some man. And late in the poem, the line goes like this. Love means love of the thing sung, not of the song or of the singing. Love means love of the thing sung, not of the song or of the singing. You pray for that preacher before, during, and after that their love would be greater of the subject of the sermon than the sermon itself. Because love means love of the thing preached, not of the preaching or of the sermon. You pray that for them. You pray this for yourself that you might hear it and that you might wish to heed it, knowing that you're going to need help in order to believe and to do both. You pray, you prepare. How do you prepare? Look, like no other time and ever, you can walk in here not having to come in cold going, I wonder what we're going to talk about today. Like the website is up 48 hours before you show up here with everything that you need to know about what we're going to discuss. How hard would it be for you to read the passage the night before or the morning of? Don't come in cold. Come in curious. What's going to talk about? Where do I go? That's how you prepare yourself beforehand. And then you have to prepare yourself to have to reckon with what you're going to do after. It may need you need to think. It will inevitably mean you'll need to pray. What can be helpful is for you to talk it over with somebody and then try to imagine, so what do I do? 
These, I think, are the mandates of anyone that would hear the sermon with a belief that the Holy Spirit is actually active in it. And that is what I call you and myself to today. Let's pray. Would you help us to believe that these words are true? Would you help us, as the Lord Jesus said himself, that when we hear from him, we will know whether or not they are his own language or if they are the words of God? Would you, with the help of your spirit, help us to find rest and encouragement in what we find and what we hear and what we read and what we discuss? And as we struggle to understand, surely there are many things, even as Peter has said, that are difficult to understand and, and difficult to f filter into our world and to understand. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us that we might hope and heed and love. In Jesus' name, amen.